Hello and welcome to Physical Attraction. This week, taking a break from climate, we have a special guest on the show, Tim Huang. Tim Huang is a writer and researcher, and he's the author of Subprime Attention Crisis, a book about how online advertising may have become a bubble. He is currently a research fellow at the Center for Security and Emerging Technology at Georgetown University, the former director of the Harvard-MIT Ethics and Governance of AI Initiative, which was a big philanthropic fund and research effort trying to advance the development of machine learning in the public interest. And he's also served as the global public policy lead for artificial intelligence and machine learning at Google. So when I say we have an expert here, I'm, he knows what he's talking about. We had a fascinating conversation that started with a little word on deepfakes and misinformation, and then gets into the heart of this subprime attention crisis thesis. Is online advertising a bubble? And if so, what does that mean for the internet that depends on it so much? I hope you enjoyed the episode. Without further ado then, the interview. Hi, Tim. So first of all, thanks very much for agreeing to come on the show and being so generous with your time. I want to start with a little bit of background. You've had a fascinating career, which has involved being the director of public policy for AI and machine learning at Google and research surrounding the ethics and governance of AI at MIT. In that context, you've done a great deal of research in some of the issues that generally come under this malicious use of AI, which includes things like deep fakes, disinformation, algorithms used to amplify particular messages and so on. Uh, The main thrust of what we'll be talking about is your book, Subprime Attention Crisis, which is about advertising. But I wanted to just ask about this first, especially after the 2016 election. This has been an area with a great deal of heat and maybe not so much light. So would you like to talk about some of your research in this field? You know, should we be worried about deep fakes, machine learning being used to influence people's opinions? And and if we should, how should we look to combat this sort of thing? Yeah, absolutely. And first off, yeah, Thomas, thanks for having me on the show. Um, I would say, yeah, on the specific issue um, of the kind of relationship between machine learning and disinformation, you know, my point of view is that it will be a threat. It is something that we need to be concerned about, but frequently not in perhaps the ways that we often, you know, expect uh, or, or, you know, the, the easiest kind of doomsday scenario to come up with uh, is maybe not necessarily the scenarios we need to be most worried about. Um, and so, you know, my background is very much as a software engineer, as a, as a technical person. Um, and I've been trying to basically brought more and more into the world of kind of Uh, policy and regulation and sort of national security strategy over the last few years. And, you know, it's really with that technical lens um, that I look at things like deepfakes. Um, And, you know, in some ways, I think people see, you know, the the coolest uh, and latest, you know, GAN out of NVIDIA, and they say, oh, my God, you know, we're going to soon be awash in, in deepfakes. Um, but, you know, having come from the technical side, and if you've ever played around with machine learning before, you know it can actually be, you know, quite expensive and difficult, right, to, to use. GANs mm-hmm. are hard to train. You need to acquire a lot of training data. Um, and so, you know, one of the pieces that I recently worked on in terms of research is a paper that just came out um, called um, Deep Fakes, a Grounded Threat Assessment. And really what it attempts to do is basically say, let's look at machine learning. Um, and from that, can we think a little bit about places where the sort of, you know, operational constraints of things like deepfakes make it easier or harder to use the technology? And, you know, I always joke that I think about the, uh, the middle manager at the Internet Research Agency, right? The, the kind of like mid-level bureaucrat in the Russian propaganda operation. Um, and they really have to think about costs and benefit, right? They have to weigh, you know, how expensive it is to use a tool um, against how much disinformation or persuasion or confusion it's going to create. Um, and I think what's interesting is if you think about that, it turns to be, it becomes pretty clear pretty quickly that it's actually unclear if we really will see massive use of deep fakes in this kind of political and election domain. Um, and that's largely because there's lots and lots of cheaper ways of spreading disinformation that don't rely on sort of like the latest technologies. So I would say that's a long way of saying I'm, I'm a little bit skeptical about its use in the political domain. Now, I think what's interesting is that to go to the very thing, first thing I said is is that I do think that these technologies can and will be used in a way to harm people. Um, But I think it has been a lot more evident, you know, in the world of, you know, say non-consensual pornography, right, where people are kind of creating um, explicit images of people without their consent. Um, and, and that's a use case where I feel like this kind of cost benefit analysis maybe doesn't apply so much. And so I do think that like this, this analysis is helpful at getting us to a better sense of, you know, where are the problems and where aren't the problems. And, and I think that's, that's really more where I sit, right? That it isn't necessarily the doomsday technology that will eliminate our ability to tell what's true and what's not. Um, I think really more likely it will be, you know, harming, you know, places, producing harm, I would say, in places um, that are that are really not in the kind of political domain that people have been so worried about. 
Mm-hmm. I think that's an interesting perspective because so often our scenario for this has been this quite lurid scenario where, for example, there's a fake video of a president going around mm-hmm. um, or a presidential candidate, which uh, creates a massive scandal. Um, it almost seems mm-hmm. like in the last year, at least, the scandals have sort of generated themselves and people haven't really sure. needed evidence that's that convincing to silo themselves into different uh, information ecosystems and so on. And you sort of wonder whether the the, the problem with deepfakes yeah. is almost the fact that people could dismiss something that's real as a deepfake if they wanted to. It, it essentially undermines um, our trust in, in evidence uh, itself. What, I mean, what would you make of that? Yeah, I mean, I suppose so. Um, you know, I, I agree with you, right? I do think that, I mean, you know, it's it, there's a lot of things that spread disinformation uh, that don't really rely on the image being incredibly sharp, right, or believable, right? There's like these poorly photoshopped images that are widely circulated through the web and widely believed. Um, and I think that just goes to show that if you're a real pragmatist about these things, there's ways of spreading disinformation that really don't rely um, on on the latest greatest technologies, um, and so so I do agree. I mean, the, the the effect that you're pointing to, which is the reverse, right? Which is not necessarily will people believe deepfakes, but rather will people believe or lack uh, a sort of treat video with a little less credibility? Um, something that the, some people call the liar's dividend. I, I think that again is like a much more realistic type threat. Um, then the kind of lurid ones that you've mentioned, right? This fake video that interrupts an election, you know, the day before the election. I would say in some ways the American election was a, a natural experiment. And I think the fact that we didn't really see it exert a major influence uh, is, is a pretty important, you know, data point for us. Mm-hmm. Because it's almost like part of the issue with misinformation and disinformation is people's willingness to believe it takes them most of the way there rather than necessarily just the convincingness of the evidence. I mean, is, is that what you see when, when people discuss disinformation um, and, you know, how it's spread through algorithms and on social media? Yeah, I think that's, that's correct, actually. Um, and it will go to something that we'll talk about a little bit later, right, which is that it's, it's unclear, right, the degree to which, um, you know, now we're moving on from deepfakes to the kind of, you, you brought up the, the kind of case of sort of like algorithms influencing people. Um, it's interesting. I mean, the evidence for that is a lot less clear than you might think. Um, and, and I do think that we always have to separate what is the impact of the technology versus these deeper kind of social forces, right? Because again, I don't think that, you know, the belief in a deep fake is going to be based on how sharp the image is. A lot more of it will have to do with, you know, does that person prime to believe the narrative that's being expressed? You know, do they get something out of sharing that kind of content with other people? Um, those forces are the ones that really make a difference, I think, in the spread of disinformation more than, you know, this, this kind of cool machine learning demonstration, you know, that someone can do. Mm-hmm. And then it becomes a harder problem for the tech companies to solve in a way, because their, their inclination, I think, is to engineer their way out of problems that they might have engineered their way into and to say, what we need is more machine learning and more AI tools that can recognize these fakes or <laughs> automatically prune out this disinformation. And actually, in some ways, I mean, I often wonder whether it's even the nature of having these algorithms that optimize for attention on a website or optimize for clicks on a website, which is intricately linked to the advertising industry, which is what we're going to come on to talk about, that, that is almost really producing this uh, ecosystem where things get siloed into highly engage-worthy content and so on. You know, And it, it's not even a question of all we need is a better bot to weed out the disinformation so much as, well, okay, what aspects of the fundamental structure here are influencing these things to keep happening? Right. And, you know, I think there's a concept that comes up sometimes in in sort of defense and national security circles, which is the notion of asymmetric warfare. Right. And I do think that disinformation and media manipulation really is asymmetric. Right. In in the sense that basically, you know, people who are trying to do sort of, you know, negative things online, they have lots and lots of low cost options to choose from. And you can imagine a world in which we come up with like the world's greatest deepfake detector or even an algorithm that, you know, and we can argue with whether or not it's even possible, but like an algorithm that tells what's true from what's false. Um, I, I guess I tend to believe that it's going to be easier for sort of bad actors to be able to get around those defenses faster than we can create mm-hmm. good defenses against, um, you know, various manipulation tactics. So from the US perspective, I guess you could say it's less of a, a digital Pearl Harbor and more of a digital Vietnam. Uh, yes, unfortunately, I do think that that is, uh, that is unfortunately the case. Okay, so I want to move on and talk about subprime attention crisis, which is your new book about the online advertising industry. And it's a really great book. I recommend everyone get a copy. 
Um, it's essentially a dire warning, as the title suggests, that the industry may be in a bubble similar to that which the housing market was in, in the run-up to the financial crisis. Um, before we come on to that thesis in detail, we need to emphasise how core advertising is to the way that the internet is structured. It accounts for massive percentages of Google's and Facebook's revenue, nearly all of Facebook's revenue. Um, how did advertising become the cornerstone that the internet is based on? And how has the landscape for it changed over the years? I realise that's a big question, but a sort of potted <laughs> history of that, I think, would really help. Yeah, no, happy to talk a little bit about it. And it really is a fascinating story, right? Uh, you know, in, in many ways, I think in 2020, I think it's easy to forget that in the early days of the internet, right, like there, it was never clear that it was going to be an enormous moneymaker, right? In fact, there's all these amazing quotes from people in the early 90s being like, it's an interesting technology, but it's unclear if it's ever going to make a real buck, right? Um, and, and I think there's this amazing kind of nascent period in the development of the internet, right, where people were experimenting with different types of business models. And in some ways, advertising became a powerful business model, largely because we invented a specific kind of doing advertising, a way of doing advertising online that's known as programmatic advertising. And essentially, this is basically the use of algorithms at very large scale to buy and sell attention online. Um, and really, it was, it was a technology that was necessitated by the growth of products like Google, right? Like the search engine, where suddenly, you know, you had lots and lots of people looking at this website um, and you had to figure out how to make money off of it. Um, and it turns out that programmatic advertising was just a way to make it extremely scalable. And one of the things I call sort of programmatic advertising in my book is, is it's a kind of financial jet fuel, right? That it really is an incredible way of scaling fortunes incredibly, incredibly quickly, and really is responsible for powering the growth of, you know, the defining companies that really shape our kind of day-to-day -day experience of the web today. Um, and, and really, I think that was sort of an unexpected development, but I think the main thing that really, you know, allowed advertising to become a dominant model was that it was, you know, scalable, um, it was cheap to deploy, um, and, and you were able to make a lot of money really quickly. Um, and, and it really has become sort of like the cornerstone for how all these companies fund themselves. <laughs> and I think it might also be helped to just get a little bit of an overview about how ads are bought and sold in the modern day internet. I mean, how do sure. these things look from a sort of buyer's perspective? And who are the big sellers here? Yeah. And so this is actually one of my main reasons for writing the book. Um, you mentioned a little bit earlier that I spent a few years at Google. And, um, you know, Google for a company that, you know, raises more than 80% of its revenue, right, from advertising, it's kind of amazing how little people talk about advertising on a day-to-day -day basis, right? That like, it's kind of a rumor, right? People say, oh yeah, we know we're funded by advertising, but you can talk to engineers at Google where you say, so how does that whole ad system work? And it's just like a magic box, essentially. And, and so one of the missions of subprime attention crisis, whether or not you agree or not with the argument I'm making, um, is to really describe in detail how sort of modern advertising works. And, and it really is a, a fascinating and amazing kind of engineering feat in a lot of ways. And so the basics of it are pretty simple to understand. Um, essentially, as you browse around the internet, um, you click on websites that are triggered to deliver ads. Um, what's interesting is basically when you click on uh, a website, though, you don't really know yet what advertisement you're going to see when the website fully loads. And as I mentioned earlier, the way that we figure this out is a system that's known as programmatic advertising. And essentially what happens is that your attention, the supply of attention, is essentially flagged to a market. Um, and it's a little bit like uh, a sort of quantitative trading or even high frequency trading, if you will, where there's basically a, a light that goes on that says, here's an opportunity to put an ad in front of Tim. Now, what happens is basically that there's a large number of algorithms online that represent different types of media buyers. And they will instantaneously at lightning speed bid for the right to put that ad in front of your eyeball, right? And based on the price and other factors, a winner will be declared. Uh, the ad will be delivered, and uh, it appears the minute that the website loads, right? And all this happens at split seconds, um, billions and billions of times a day. And this is really this is really kind of the core engine of how it works. Um, and you know, the the main sellers of advertising are what's known in the industry as publishers, right? And so this can be everything from your local you know newspaper website um, to to the biggest social media platforms, right? They are basically the suppliers of attention. 
And then on the buyer side, you have uh, media buyers of all kinds, right? So this can be everything from, again, your, your local um, you know, mom and pop shop um, to, to a large multinational trying to promote their products. Um, and what programmatic advertising has done is kind of create a massive marketplace where both publishers of many different sizes and sellers of different sizes or buyers of different sizes uh, can all be sort of together in the same market. I was actually at the International Conference on Machine Learning uh, a couple of years ago, um, doing some stuff on, on climate change, which is my main uh, uh, area of research. And I was fascinated to see just how much of the machine learning community is actually solving all of these very complicated mathematical problems that are ultimately about you know, how to best serve an ad to an audience and who they think is going to maximize the probability of clicking on the ad and so on. I mean, it, it really is a, uh, a very mathematically complicated and, as you say, extremely high frequency field like this high frequency trading in terms of the, the density of the algorithms and the mathematics and so on that goes into it. And um, again, there's this question that, that you come up with, which is, how is it that we know um, that this industry actually works. And uh, the, the idea that this advertising industry that's at the heart of the internet, that is behind uh, billions and billions of dollars in profits uh, or billions of multi-multi-billion dollar companies uh, in revenue for these companies, and also has all of these uh, PhDs and, and geniuses working on it, um, is flawed, is of course quite quite a bold claim to make when it underpins so much of these businesses and so much of the internet. So, so I want to ask, wh when did you first come to suspect that something was awry? Yeah, sure. So I think the, one of the main triggers uh, was a really interesting story from about two years ago. Um, Procter & Gamble, uh, which is one of the largest advertisers in the world, um, basically decided to run a small experiment. And this is the experiment that they did. They basically decided that they would cut about $200 million out of their digital ad spending. And what was really interesting is that uh, they reported on the results of doing that you know, just about a year later. And one of the things they found was that there was no impact at all on their business from cutting out all of this money from their budget. Um, in fact, because they were slightly more efficient than they were usually, um, they had actually expanded the reach of their advertising slightly. Um, and I found that story just so compelling and so interesting um, because it really begs the question, what is all that money going to uh, if not to impact sort of the actual business. Um, and, you know, I think that story was just so compelling that I started digging. And, you know, the more I dug, the more that I found and, and the more interesting and sort of confusing the situation became. So it's interesting you mentioned this story of Procter & Gamble throwing away all of this money because there's a famous advertising uh, aphorism where an advertiser said, half the money I spend on marketing is wasted. Uh, the trouble I have is I don't know which half. Um, but digital advertising, when it came out, kind of promised to change that by giving you the ability to measure the response to your ads in a more fine-grained way than ever before. You know, if you put up a billboard, you don't necessarily know who's looked at it, you don't know who's been influenced by it. But with cookies and trackers and so on online, you actually should be able to know something about how effective your ads are being. Um, so can we talk about this idea, these metrics for the success of advertising and how they shape the ad industry and also how accurate it is that advertisers can really use these digital ads to more accurately measure the impact of what they're doing? Because you would think, given that, that there wouldn't be a situation where Procter & Gamble are throwing millions at some ads that don't seem to be doing anything. Sure. Yeah. So there's a lot there for sure. Um, I mean, I think that, you know, often these debates kind of get like, you know, they, they collapse into a single question, right? Which is, do ads work or not? Right. But I think it's worth taking a step back and considering how many things need to happen for an ad to even get to the position where we're debating whether or not it works. Right. So the first question is like, is the ad delivered to a human or not? Right. Um, one of the really interesting aspects of the modern day ad ecosystem is just the enormous prevalence of fraud in the marketplace. Um, there was a study from a few years back that suggested that almost 60% of display ads uh, are fraudulent in the sense that the ad is sort of delivered, but it's not delivered to a person. It's either delivered to a bot that's designed to click on an ad uh, or it's delivered to someone who's part of a click farm, right? They're sort of paid to click on ads. So that's the first piece, right? Enormous prevalence of ad fraud. Um, on the second hand, okay, there's whether or not we deliver to a human or not. There's a second question of whether or not that delivery is to a relevant person. Um, and there's a lot of evidence to suggest that the data that's used in targeting advertising is highly faulty, right? Um, and one of the really interesting phenomenon, you mentioned earlier, all the machine learning work that's done. Um, there's some studies to suggest that basically a lot of this machine learning, what it does is it finds people that would have bought a product anyways, even if you hadn't advertised to them. 
um, which is somewhat reasonable, right? Because you're basically trying to pattern match with people who have bought the product in the past. Um, and so I think that's the second piece, which is another bit of intermediation. This is quite common to machine learning algorithms. Yes. All you tell them to do is to maximize a certain thing, right? Right. And they will find whatever way to do that, even if it's some trivial way that is the way you don't want them to do. So a classic example is these things are often tested on video games. Right. And you tell it to complete the level and score as many points as possible. And quite often these things will find a cheat in the video game or they'll find a bug that allows them to score infinitely many points. Right. And, and in the advertising example, this is quite similar to, for example, these algorithms sort of stumbling upon the fact that people who Google the word eBay are quite likely to then go on and buy something from eBay. Yeah, exactly. And you're referencing a, a great study there, right? Which is uh, that that actually was an experiment that eBay had conducted. And, and the results were definitely that, right? Which is that a lot of advertising is delivered to... Um, people who would have purchased anyways, right? And so there's a causal question with some of that's being done. And then on top of that, there's another layer, which is, okay, say the ad is, is delivered to a human, it's delivered to the right human. Then there's a question of, does the person ever see it at all, right? And the problem there is that ad blocking is, is on the rise in many cases. Um, you know, Google itself did a study a little while back that suggested a huge number of ads are just never seen, uh, because they're loaded, but they're you know um, below the fold, for example, in a browser, right? Or they're placed somewhere that someone never, no one never even notices it, right? And so, so finally, finally, if you get through all those gates, we finally get to the question of are ads effective or not? And I think this is actually sort of the really interesting thing is that we do have this assumption that all of this data gives you the ability to target ads more effectively, but I think a lot of this intermediation um, really casts some doubt on the fact that you know whether or not ad, online ads are that much better. Um, and, and to be clear, I mean, I think the claim of this book is not necessarily that online ads are uniquely bad, but they may just be as bad as every other pre previous generation of advertising. Um, and so in some ways, sort of Wanamaker's principle, right? What you said, like 50% of ads are wasted, I just don't know which, uh, may still be the case today. And, you know, it's interesting. So we've talked about this. We've talked about ad fraud. We've talked about ads being skipped, ad block. Um, another thing that I like that your book mentions is the so-called fat finger rate, which is the idea that on mobile phones, um, <laughs> when people do click on an ad, around half of that is by mistake. And that actually rings true when any of us have had mobile, particularly on websites with bad UX. You know, you click on ads accidentally way more often than you intend to actually click on them. That's correct, um, yeah. One thing that is quite interesting here is... These things have risen, obviously, in recent years since the online advertising has started. Uh, ad fraud and click farms have become more popular. People are on mobile, so you have the fat finger rates. Ad block has, has, has shot up. Yet the actual value of advertising has not seemed to reflect the fact that the underlying commodity, the, the attention um, that's being sold, has changed in value. I mean, how is the advertising industry engaging with this stuff, or is it just not being mentioned? Um, it is. I mean, some of these problems are well known. Um, and, you know, in some ways, right, the name of the book is Subprime Attention Crisis. It's, it's very explicitly trying to draw a connection between what we have in ads and earlier generations uh, of, uh, of, you know, market bubbles. And I think one of the things that we, we see is actually that, you know, uh, as with many previous financial bubbles, uh, the, the problems in ads are known. I think the question is just whether or not there's a strong enough incentive to fix any of the problems, given that the money is so, so good. Um, and so, so I think that in some ways, like, uh, I think I'm pointing out problems that are, that are well known. Um, it's really just a question of whether or not we're going to do something about it in time. And so just to talk about the subprime mortgage crisis um, for, for people who have forgotten their history from 2007, 2008, this was the idea that people were trading in financial instruments that included these subprime mortgages who had been given to, uh, I guess, lenders who were less likely to be able to pay them back, who maybe didn't have stable incomes and so on, couldn't afford to pay them back. And then ratings agencies came along and told them that what they were buying was triple A rated debt that it couldn't default, uh, you know, that it was as good as a US Treasury bond and was going to pay back. Um, and so the idea that you have here is that the attention that is being kind of parceled and bought and sold um, on the online advertising industry is similarly subprime in the sense that if you dig into it, um, a lot of what you think is, is valid clicks and engagement that is driving uh, sales. So for example, in the eBay case, they did think it was driving sales because you know, their, their, their way of measuring whether it's driving sales is, is there a sale after a click? And if the algorithm has found people who are going to buy anyway, then you'll succeed quite often in that case. So 
it's almost a case that you can't necessarily measure what you're doing and you can't right. dig into the quality of the attention so well. Um, so the, 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 one of the things that I think is a very interesting parallel between those two situations is, as you say, the problems were known about. People at the time knew that they were bundling up these mortgages, that they didn't really know what was in them. And they knew that in many cases that what was in them was not actually uh, going to be good debt at the end of the day. And yet ways in which the system was structured just meant that the incentives for everyone were kind of perverse. So the, the incentives for the people who were selling the bonds was to get more mortgages to put in the bonds. You know, The incentives for people who were selling the mortgages was getting a bonus every time they sold the mortgage. People wanted to take on loans that they couldn't pay back because it gave them the opportunity for a household. And so at, at every level, you have a different perverse set of incentives that is uh, getting people to continue with this system that isn't necessarily working so well. Um, would you like to talk about some of the parallels then between specifically that subprime mortgage crisis and the attention economy? And uh, again, whether there's this similar structure where people have these incentives that is making them carry on with something that is not necessarily working so well. Yeah, absolutely. So I think there's a, a number of parallels, uh, of course, but I think maybe there's two that are perhaps most salient and I think worth mentioning. Um, the first one is, you know, I've gotten a very sort of interesting set of responses now that the book has come out. And one of the arguments that I hear most from people in the ad technology industry is an argument that goes a little bit like this. They say, um, don't a lot of people put a lot of money into the ad market? And isn't that proof that ads work? Because they wouldn't put the money into it if it didn't work, right? Um, and I think it's just a fascinating statement just because it parallels so closely the kinds of discussion that were happening during the subprime mortgage crisis, right? Which is um, everybody's putting money into these mortgages. They work really well, right? And, and isn't the proof of the market proof of its success? And I think one of the projects of the book, I think, is to decouple those two things, to basically say, no, you know, just because a market seems to be succeeding, just because a lot of money seems to be flowing into it, doesn't mean that it's stable. Right. And does it mean that the underlying value isn't, you know, collapsing actually right in front of our eyes? And so I think that's that's one parallel. I think that's really worth uh, keeping in mind. I think the second one, uh, which is a parallel that we haven't talked about just yet, is that a lot of people don't think about all of the ways in which advertising is intertwined with their lives now. Right. Because I think some people will say, oh, well, you know, if online ads fail, will it just be that Mark Zuckerberg has a few less billion dollars? Um, and I would say no, right? Because I think that increasingly, you know, all of media uh, uh, journalism is dependent on the programmatic advertising system. You can also think about all the free services that you use, uh, Google Docs, right? Search engines um, uh, that, that really rely on advertising to subsidize. Um, one of the most interesting things talking about machine learning, right, is that some of the most leading industrial labs in the world, your Facebooks and Googles of the world, their research labs don't, they're not revenue positive, right? And so one way of thinking about it is that there's a whole world of cutting edge research, uh, which is largely subsidized through ads. And so a little bit like mortgages, the failure of this one market is likely to have all sorts of collateral impacts that we don't normally think about. And I think that's a second really important parallel to keep in mind when thinking about the sort of you know, similarities and dissimilarities between now and uh, 2008. <laughs> and I think the, the other interesting thing is just the point, as you say, that all of the advertising people are obviously going to tell you, well, people are putting money into this. Of course it works. And similarly, <laughs> many companies will have a marketing department. You know, They're not going to come along and say, actually, yeah, what we're doing doesn't help. Uh, we have no evidence that our advertising is successful. Um, sure. Please give us less money and fire us from our jobs. You know, So it's, <laughs> yeah, I think it's just right. not going to happen. That's right. That many, really sorry, is... that many people involved in the industry. I mean, your, your book opens with this wonderful anecdote where you go to one of these conferences and someone stands up and gives this presentation about, all of the flaws in the advertising industry. And it's just sort of met with a kind of, we don't want to hear this response. Right. Yeah, that's that's right. And yeah, I think that was so striking to me. Um, and and again, I, I feel like, you know, an industry that's unwilling to really seriously deal with some of these problems, um, you know, really is a bubble, right? Um, because I, I think it's like, you know, now, now we really have to turn to the question of like, what do we do about it? Another aspect that's kind of contributing to this, this bubble um, is a faith in the technology to succeed and deliver. And, you know, that I think part of that comes in this whole idea that there's this incredibly complex algorithm, which is also extremely opaque. So you don't really know what it is that you're actually buying and selling all of the time. Um, and even a lot of people who are skeptical of the tech industry and of the advertising industry, 
they still kind of buy into this idea that they have a machine learning mind control ray that can <laughs> throw loads of GPUs at a really complex problem and shape people's behavior easily. I mean, how, you know, how accurate do you think that perception is and, and whether the marketing material for marketing companies is kind of comparing to the reality of what we can do with machine learning and, and changing people's minds at the moment. That's right. Yeah, I mean, I think one of the biggest bubbles in advertising right now is the hype around machine learning. Um, and I do think that, like, on some level, the idea is very attractive. It's very seductive. And so some ways I, I like, sort of don't blame people for buying into it, right? Which is, you know, this kind of very intuitive argument, which is Google has so much data. Facebook has so much data. These advertisings have the best minds working on delivering these ads. How could it not work, Right. And um, I think that anyone who's worked with machine learning, for instance, for a period of time, knows that these technologies are not as you know, sci-fi as they are often sold to be. Um, and I think we have a very similar thing that is kind of playing out in, in the ad space. Um, and so, so yeah, I, I ultimately am kind of a, a, a skeptic on some of these things. And you know, I, I think we're seeing this argument play out in very interesting ways, right? Like, um, you know, I just uh, recently, the, the uh, UK ICO, right, that has been investigating the Cambridge Analytica scandal, uh, came out with a report where they said, look, you know, there's obviously a huge privacy violation here for what Cambridge Analytica did. But it's actually unclear if their marketing hype was actually lived up to reality, like whether or not all this data driven psychographic analysis really did allow them to deliver ads in a way that was manifestly more effective. And I think those types of stories should give us pause, right? Not just about what Cambridge Analytica did, but about the whole edifice, I think, of, of advertising. Mm -hmm. And, you know, it's interesting. There was um, Shoshana Zubov's book about surveillance capitalism, sort of talking about this being the next phase of capitalism is going to be these uh, huge industries that, that mine our attention data and mine data about us and then use that to manipulate us into buying things. This is sort of the way that a lot of the big tech companies are trying to go with their various different uh, efforts. And, you know, the idea that maybe that actually isn't going to be successful um, or isn't going to be as successful as people hope, uh, I think is an interesting one because it, it really challenges a lot of where the tech industry is going at the moment. Would, would you agree with that? Yeah, I think the book has turned out to be oddly polarizing in some ways, right? Because I think that like on both sides of the debate, right, like whether or not you are a diehard Silicon Valley tech optimist, or you are a Shoshana Zuboff, right, tech skeptic, tech critic. Um, both sides need to agree that the tech is powerful for them to be either a booster or a critic of it, right? Um, and, and I think this, this argument that I'm making almost cuts against both of these sides, right? It basically says that maybe what you're talking about is nowhere near as effective as it is. And so, again, I'm sympathetic to, say, Zuboff's uh, position, right, which is that, you know, there maybe is social problems created by these companies, but we may just not need to necessarily rest that argument on the fact that, you know, that this data-driven advertising is this powerful persuasion machine, right? That maybe we really want to resist it on other reasons, right? Like we maybe don't feel comfortable that one company should have all this power, right? Or, or maybe we don't feel comfortable that they should be able to hold all this data, right? And those might be more robust things to kind of build a critique on. Mm -hmm. One of the core points of the book, then, is this fact, as you've mentioned before, that the internet is a platform that's based on advertising and attention rather than alternative models for making money, and that this has had a really important knock-on effect to the way these platforms try to operate. I mean, you, you talk about, for example, the reason why we engage with content by liking it or, or retweeting it. Um, it is, is because of this stuff. Uh, and, you know, actually, it's quite interesting. Twitter, for those of you who are extremely online like me, has recently changed the way they do things so that the default when you retweet someone is to quote tweet them and put a comment on what they have said. And, you know, before I started thinking about how the tech industry works, I would have just thought, oh, that's interesting. They've changed that. And now I can clearly see it's all about attention and engagement. And someone's obviously figured out that if your default is commenting on something rather than just passively retweeting it, you're actually more likely to spark a discussion and a conversation and keep people on the platform and so right. on, which is the whole point. And it, it's the reason why these platforms are all competing to capture as much of our attention as possible. And this in turn has led to all kinds of widely discussed phenomena like journalism giving way to clickbait, algorithms that segregate us into groups which are target markets and, and maybe show us some more inflammatory content than we might normally get. So aside from the idea that the bubble might burst, which we'll come on to, I mean, how do you think that this centering of advertising as the heart of the internet, as the profitable heart of the internet, has, has impacted society more widely and also how we engage with the internet? 
Yeah, so I think it's a great point. And I think we're drawing a really important distinction, right? Which is basically that ads don't necessarily need to work for ads to shape um, our experience of the web, right? Um, for example, even in a world where ads don't work, it still may be important because advertisers may need to kind of collect audiences that they can advertise against. And that has very real social impacts, right? Uh, similarly, right, like things like the, the fact that the advertising world works on um, click-through rates and time on site, right? Like that has incentivized the creation of certain types of content, right? Everything from clickbait to the listicle uh, is arguably a, a, a kind of outcome of how the way advertising has structured the internet. Um, and, and I do believe that in some ways advertising is a way to kind of think about how the whole internet is sort of put together. You can take any piece of the web and say, you know, why has advertising caused it to take the shape that it has? Um, and, and so I do think that, you know, it's important to decouple those two things. And, and I totally agree that I do think that like uh, sort of the ad industry can have a very strong effect, even if ads themselves do not. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And even just the sort of wider social repercussions of this, you know, I was thinking about it the other day in terms of Facebook, which is a company that was designed to, you know, originally compare um, photos of college students and so on, and has suddenly been at the centre of so much uh, geopolitical <laughs> discussions lately. It, it just shows how the decisions you make, even at the start of some of these projects, can really end up influencing things further on down the line. Sure, yeah, that's absolutely true. So the natural questions that then come on from this thesis really are, if there's a bubble, what might make it burst? Uh, and specifically, you know, COVID might be something that people would think about um, here in that respect. Um, and, and what would the ramifications potentially be? And, and do you think there are signs that people are getting skeptical about the digital advertising economy and it might face a liquidity crisis? Because you would think that companies who are obviously always looking to optimize for costs and so on might be starting to read some of this research that's coming out and thinking, well, maybe we should try doing what eBay did or Procter and Gamble did. And, and we should follow on from their example and, and experiment with our uh, digital advertising budget and maybe not just throw hundreds of millions of dollars at Facebook or whatever, because we think that's going to work. <laughs> yeah, I think that's right. Um, so it's worth taking a step back, right? I, I think that ultimately what drives markets, right? Uh, and what drives a bubble is, is a social thing. It's, it's faith, right, ultimately, in, in the effectiveness or the value of the product being bought and sold. And so as we think about like, what might bring the market down, uh, we have to really think about scenarios that might cause a, a crisis right, in our, in our faith in the, of the power of digital advertising. And so I do think that, yeah, you've already pointed out one scenario, which I think is very realistic, which is you know, the, the experiences of a few large ad buyers you know, basically shutting off digital ads and not seeing much of an impact uh, is a pretty big deal, right? And I do think that it could potentially create a cascade where a bunch of people say, well, maybe we should try that as well. Um, I think there's two other bubbles uh, that I'll point out, right? Like, I think the first one is um, one thing that we kind of touched upon briefly, right, is the bubble around machine learning, right? Where basically people have said, okay, well, we know advertising is maybe ineffectual right now, but hopefully this machine learning thing will allow us to target ads in ways that we've never been able to do before and really finally like crack the nut, right? And really create effective ads. Um, and, and I just don't think that's the case, right? Like I think the technology is like a lot of hope and a lot of hype, um, but I think ultimately it may not amount to too much. Um, I think the, the, the final bubble that I'll point out is actually, I think that all these privacy laws that are being passed around the world, um, everything from GDPR in Europe to CCPA in California, um, have this very real possibility of proving that all of this data may not amount to much. And I think it's a fascinating natural experiment we're about to all go through, right? Which is that advertisers obviously think that if they lose access to, say, third-party cookies, that you know, they won't be able to target ads effectively anymore. I almost have the suspicion that we're going to find out that actually ads work pretty much as good as before, uh, even without this data. Um, and if that's the case, I think it calls into question a whole range of things that could have a really big impact on sort of our faith in the current way advertising is done online. Again, this isn't just about Mark Zuckerberg or someone losing millions of dollars. It, it is, in fact, the fact that so much of the Internet, uh, these huge companies um, that obviously have lots of influence on the wider economy, but also provide search, provide social, provide everything else, all depend so heavily on the ability to generate revenue through advertising. Um, your, your book has sort of been a broadside about the idea that they can carry on doing this forever. Um, so I'd be interested in, in knowing, you know, what do you think would happen to these companies if, if the bubble did burst? And, and is there any sign that they're engaging with, with your critiques here? Or are they sort of 
uh, sticking their fingers in their ears and saying, la, 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 we can carry on making money this way. Um, yeah, I, you know, it's very interesting. I, I like have received some critiques about the book online. And I what I would really love to do, if, if anyone is listening to this podcast and knows someone who would do this, is let's just have a public debate about it. I would love to debate someone from the ad tech industry. I would love to debate someone from Google or Facebook that works in these systems. Um, just because I think it, there's, there's a very real need to kind of air out the situation. Um, because from my point of view, I think they are very much kind of sticking their hands in their ears and, uh, and, and just saying, la, 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 right? Um, and, and I do think that there's a need to kind of like confront that, right? Because if, if it really is justified, uh, then they should have no problem demonstrating that it's not the case. Um, and, and I guess I'm still waiting for that level of transparency. From and again, it comes back to this opacity idea, isn't it, right? Because if you have, you can say, oh, our magical algorithm is so complicated, you have no way of understanding how it works. But trust <laughs> me, we've got the data and the analytics. We can't show them to you, but believe me, we get um, engagement and we know that it's genuine because of reasons. Um, That's right, exactly. And, <laughs> and I think it really is... does, like, I've had debates with friends. I had a friend who used to be a, a fairly high up product manager um, at a large unnamed tech company working on these types of systems. And, and he would basically was like, they work, but if I told you why, I'd have to kill you, which I feels like so strange, uh, given that like, this is, this is literally what the value of the company is based on, that it would be shrouded in such mystery is really puzzling to me. Yeah, but this is the thing with bubbles, isn't it? Is people find themselves in this situation quite often where, I mean, this was one of the things I, I read um, Econed, which is a book about the, the 2008 crisis. Mm -hmm. And there are points where people are involved buying and selling these collateralized debt obligations. They know that what they're buying and selling is not actually worth what they think it is, but it's in everyone's interest to say that it is um, and to continue kind of maintaining that illusion to each other um, for as long as it takes them to, to offload it. That's right. And, you know, I, you had this question earlier that I want to go back to, which is, so what does this kind of crash look like if the bubble does pop? Um, and I think in some ways the, the COVID downturn is actually maybe like a light version of what I imagine, right? Which is, you know, in the near term, actually, you know, a, a downturn in these markets helps the big, big tech companies because they have so much cash, they can afford to survive and they can afford to acquire companies that are rendered weak by the downturn. But ultimately, you see the massive human cost, right? That basically the internet that we've created is so brittle from a media standpoint that you have a lot of people suddenly out of work that are creating content online. Um, I think if, if the, the bubble got even worse beyond that point, um, and I talk about this a little bit in the book, I think it would actually raise some of the same difficult sort of public policy questions that we had in 2008, right? Which is, you know, do we want to bail out these big tech companies? Um, and, and I think that would be really fascinating if we ever ended up in that kind of scenario. I mean, you mentioned the journalists. I think one anecdote that comes back to me a lot is how just showing you how the advertising industry and dynamics within it can drive uh, journalism and things like people. This is, is the pivot to video. Yeah, sure. Um, I, I use it as an example for, you know, what people often say is like, well, Tim, don't we have a lot more data to measure ads? And, and on that count, aren't ads a lot more uh, transparent than they used to be, right? As against the billboard or something like that. And I agree with them, right? It actually turns out that we do have a lot more visibility into the effective, effectiveness of ads, but on an ad by ad level. Generally, we actually have a lot less visibility into how the market as a whole is evolving. And one great example of this is, is, uh, is the pivot to video. So a few years back, basically, Facebook came out and said, um, video is going to be the next hot thing on Facebook. We're finding that people watch a lot of video. And so if you want to be content that succeeds on our platform, you need to you know, double down, hire video producers, fire other people. And a lot of media companies followed suit, right? They said, okay, we're going to go ahead and do this. Um, and, you know, it came out basically, you know, not too long later that Facebook had basically overstated the amount that people were watching video on their platform by 60 to 80%, right? And they, they apologized at that point and there's been lawsuits and it's been a real mess. Um, and, you know, whether or not you think this was intentional deception or just negligence, I think it really goes to show how little we know about what actually works and what doesn't work online and how much we really have to rely on, you know, just our faith in the word of, of these big tech companies um, to, to make assessments about the market as a whole. Yeah, I think that's interesting. Again, it's this control of information flow and this opacity that, that's the interesting point here. You, you compare advertising and the internet to the role that oil has in our society in terms of being the lifeblood and the transportation and, and the underpinning so much of how it works. And also in terms of the fact that the demand for oil affects the economy in so many other ways. I mean, we remember the oil shock of the 1970s, where that caused global recessions because of this one commodity that had changed in value. And 
much as you know we in the climate space think about how we have to you know if we stop producing oil tomorrow it would be a disaster because no one would be able to transport themselves around the <laughs> right. place um we, we can't necessarily have this bubble bursting what we need instead is a, a, a well in, in climate a very rapid but in any case a, a decarbonization um, a removal of fossil fuels and a replacement with them with something else that will continue to provide us with the services we want. And it's very similar in in what you might want to do in the internet, which is strip back the role of advertising and the role that advertising plays. And if we accept this premise that it's not going to be sustainable to have this model of the internet for too much longer, then you know how can we uh, how can we de-advertise the internet? You know how what might replace it? Yeah, absolutely. And, and you know, I, I would say I'm more of a moderate on this issue. Uh, you definitely meet some hawks that say, look, we should have no advertising on the internet ever. Um, and I guess I can't bring myself to necessarily hold that position just because we know that advertising is a good model for certain types of things, right? Like that we know that, for example, advertising makes ser- services a lot more accessible than they would otherwise be, right? Like uh, the fact that Google search is free um, is a pretty big deal, right? Um, and, and there's a lot of people who wouldn't be able to pay a subscription to it. Um, and so, so I do think that the, the real kind of crux of the book is not necessarily to argue that we need to get rid of ads. It's really more to challenge the idea that ads should be the monoculture, right? The single kind of business model that is really responsible for really shaping a lot of our everyday experience online. And so the vision that I really want to get to is... is um, you know, uh, I, I would say a, a more diverse set of business models. Um, and, and so some of it's very old fashioned, right? To basically say, maybe we just need, you know, we need more subscriptions, right? Like that, that, is, that is one model that I think is very sustainable. Um, I think there's been really interesting things with things like micropayments, right? Um, and, and I do think that finally, like some of it may also just be a little bit about how we structure the actual business of media. Um, you know, especially in the, the kind of COVID era, there's been a lot of interesting experiments with, you know, worker co-ops, right, run by journalists. Um, and I think those types of models are, are interesting. And again, I think what I want to see is like more experimentation in the space, because I feel like, you know, again, a monoculture is brittle. Um, and its tendency is that when it fails, there's, there's a lot of problems. And so I think a more diverse ecosystem is one that's, that's more robust, even though it might grow, say, less slowly. Yeah, absolutely. And it would it would make way for other types of website and other types of web experience as well, I think. I mean, you know, a lot of podca- podcasting is an interesting venture in this because it has advertising, but also I would say the subscription model with Patreon and so on is something that a lot of people have got into. Um, and they're sort of starting to do it um, independently, even in some cases to get around the, the gateways that are associated with advertising and finding ad buyers. Um, so it, it might be an interesting aspect of how these things are starting to evolve and different platforms that offer uh, different revenue models for people who are making stuff. Yeah, definitely. And I think one of the questions I ask myself often is like, you know, can we find a business model that scales as quickly and generates as much money as advertising? And I think if you're an optimist, you say, yes, if we experimented more, we could find that business model. Um, but I also, you know, think that we, we should also seriously consider what it means if that answer is no, right? Um, and, and, you know, ultimately we start talking about values, right? Which is, you know, are we okay with an internet that grows more slowly, uh, is maybe less accessible, all these types of things uh, for, for the, the, the opportunity to get rid of ads or reduce the influence of advertising? I mean, and I think that's, that's a big policy question, but I, I think really that's the direction we should think, be thinking about is like, what's the internet we want to have? Um, and, and, and that's kind of where I think the discussion should be pointed. Mm-hmm. And it's interesting because there are different models too. I mean, you talked about what would happen if Google couldn't be accessed because it no longer had advertising. Would we want to nationalize something like that? You know, would we want to have it mm-hmm. um, run as a, as a taxpayer service? People talk about, for example, the benefit to the economy that Wikipedia has from right. making the world's information right. accessible. Uh, that's another economic model entirely because that's, you know, voluntary mm-hmm. contributions and supported by donations as well. So again, there's, there's sort of different ways of running the internet that appear in little corners of it um, that are kind of not out, a little bit outside the ad uh, behemoth and maybe more of the internet looks like that in the future. That's right. Yeah. And I think that there is a very strong bit of path dependence. Um, you know, I recall very distinctly, I used to live in San Francisco, having a number of friends that pitch startups um, that were basically based on non-advertising business models. And they were actively encouraged to prioritize advertising-driven business models because it made a lot of money very quickly. Um, and so I do think that there's some dimension to which, like, this is, this is the model that we know that works. And particularly if you're a VC, you want to see those returns. And so I do think that there's this kind of 
uh, finger on the scale, if you will, to the level of business model experimentation that actually occurs in practice. <laughs> Tim, this has been a very, very interesting conversation. I hope that uh, our listeners have enjoyed it. Um, I want to ask you, first of all, whether there's anything that you're working on now and other things that you're working on, and also where people can find your work and find out more about what you've uh, written alongside, of course, subprime attention crisis, which you should get if you want a really deep understanding of uh, of this of this sub, <laughs> of this subprime attention crisis. Sure, absolutely. Yeah, I um I I guess uh, there's there's uh, the main project I'm working on right now. Uh, you know, later in the book, not to give away uh, the ending at all, is um, that I, I do envision a kind of creation of a kind of like punk rock research uh, center. Uh, which who's who's dedicated to try to blowing up the bubble, um, and and I really want to go about trying to build that. Um, and, and the first project that we've launched is uh, is something called AdLeaker. Um, it is basically a, a sort of secure uh, whistleblower uh, phone number that people can text over Signal. Um, and the idea essentially is to encourage people to drop information, right? Uh, you know, cast a little bit of light on what has been hidden in the ad industry. Um, and so that is one project that I'm working on right now. But generally, if you're interested in these kinds of things, I'm uh, online at, at Tim Huang, T-I-M-H-W-A-N-G dot O-R-G. Um, and also on Twitter at Tim Huang, so T-I-M-H-W-A-N-G. Tim, thank you very, very much for coming on the show today. Yeah, thanks for having me on the show. Thank you for listening to this episode of Physical Attraction. And thank you for Tim Huang for spending so much time with us and being so generous with his time and also for the book. You can find him on the web at timhuang.org, that is H-W-A-N-G, and Tim Huang on Twitter as well is his at there. Now there's plenty of different ways that you can engage with us. You can find us on Facebook, Physical Attraction, on Twitter, at PhysicsPod, on Patreon, that's patreon.com slash physicalattraction, where you'll find all of the podcasts as early as I can release them, and plenty of bonus episodes that are only available to Patreon subscribers. Thank you so much to everyone who has already subscribed and is helping to support the show and keep us going. I really, really appreciate it. You can also make one-off donations to us on PayPal, and you'll find the link to that on physicspodcast.com. If you go to physicspodcast.com, you'll also find the comments and question form. Please do send in any questions that you have, particularly if they're on the subject of climate change and the Climate 201 series. I'm writing a lot of those episodes now, and I really want to make this a very good learning resource for people so that I can use some of my network and some of my experience that I have in this field to really answer the questions that you have about climate change. So please, if you have any of those, do send them in and I'll try to answer them in future episodes. Other ways you can engage with us, there's the Science Podcast Facebook group on Facebook, and we have a subreddit, which is currently not very well frequented, but you can go in there if you want to discuss those episodes with other listeners. That is reddit.com slash r slash physicspodcast. So there's plenty of different ways that you can engage with the show, and thank you to everyone who does that already. Until next time then, please do take care.